And their uh, story is a part of the Christmas story, but not a part that's uh, usually highlighted or focused on. And uh, you're, you'll find the story uh, in Luke chapter 1. Uh, the verses we're going to look at this morning are uh, 5 through 11. And as always, I encourage you to open your Bible, but especially uh, this morning, because we're not going to be reading the entire passage beforehand, just the introductory verse, and then we'll look at the rest of the verses as we go through the message. So uh, Luke chapter 1, uh, verse 5 is what we'll read, but we'll be looking at verses 5 through 25 this morning. It says this, In the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zacharias of the division of Abijah, and he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. Father God, we thank you uh, for the opportunity we have to worship in so many ways this morning. And we know it's, it's a, another act of worship to look into your word, to allow you to teach us, to speak to us, to encourage and strengthen us. And God, we pray that you would do all of that this morning. We thank you that uh, we have the privilege of being able to look at your word and study it openly, publicly like this. And we just ask God that this morning you would be our teacher in this. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. All right, so most of you that uh, know me fairly well know that I like teaching. It's not something that I thought I would do or like when I was uh, younger, but it's definitely the way God wired me. And so it, it, it probably comes as no surprise that I particularly like the, the teaching books of the Bible, you know, uh, Romans, Ephesians, Hebrews, uh, those things like that where they say well, what we believe and why we believe it and how it should impact our lives and this type of thing. I, I like that. But, but I also really enjoy the narrative sections of the Bible, you know, books like Genesis and First and Second Samuel and Esther and the Gospels, right? These are the parts of the Bible that tell the story of God. And who doesn't like a good story, right? I mean, Hollywood has made a fortune telling stories. And, and, and I don't know about you, but when a movie is uh, um, true, then there's just something particularly gripping about that for me. I mean, when it says, uh, advertising these stories, you know, based on true events, I'm like, ooh, I, I, I like that because I'm thinking this is something that really happened. Although, you know, when it comes to Hollywood, uh, they can take a great deal of liberties with the actual details and facts of a situation and still claim that it's based on true events, right? Uh, well, when it comes to the Bible and the Bible narratives, they don't take any liberties at all, right? They tell the unvarnished, unadulterated, truthful stories of God and His people. And as such, I think it's really good for us to look at them. I mean, when you read a narrative section of the Bible, God is, is not only informing you of what happened, this is what took place, but, but He's also teaching us through that. I mean, there's two big picture things we can learn from every narrative section in the Bible. And the first is we get to see the character of God. I mean, these stories show us God at work, right? God at work in the world with His, his overall plan and objectives and God at work in individual people's lives. And so we can see how God deals with people in all kinds of different situations and, and circumstances. And since we have the promise of God uh, from Scriptures where He says, For I, the Lord, do not change, when we see how He deals with people there, we can know how it is that He relates to us today. 
So first, you know, these narratives teach us uh, uh, the character of God, but second, they show us you know, the character of people as well, right? I mean, the reality is people way back then are just like people today. I mean, we have the same hopes and disappointments, the same confidences and fears, the same joys and hurts that go on in our life. Uh, the heart of man has not changed. So seeing how um, uh, people respond to God in the circumstances that they're going through, uh, perhaps that can encourage us a bit, teach us in, in, about ourselves, uh, strengthen us, challenge us in our walk with God. So keep those two things in mind. God and, and people, as we look at the story of Zacharias and Elizabeth here, the parents of John the Baptist. Now, notice that the first thing that Luke does is anchor them in an historical context, right? And he does that to emphasize the fact, like every other narrative in the Bible, this is a true story with real people facing real circumstances in a particular point in time in history. Look at verse 5, how he says that. In the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zacharias of the division of Abijah, and he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. All right, so uh, there were a variety of Herods in the Bible. That's kind of a, more of a title than a name. And this particular guy was known as Herod the Great. And it calls him king of Judea, but he was actually a, a vassal of Rome, having been appointed by Mark Antony in 40 B.C., and uh, if you've heard of Anthony and Cleopatra, that would be that Anthony there that did that, that same guy. Uh, so, I mean, that's the historical time frame we're looking at here. But uh, there's also a social setting that's very important. It says Zacharias was a priest. And, and being a priest was a very special honor in Israel. Only people who were pure, 100% direct descendants of Aaron could serve as priests. Aaron, uh, you, you may remember, was the brother of Moses, and uh, he was designated as the very first priest of the nation of Israel when God set the nation uh, up. And uh, it was established that his sons after him would be priests to the nation. Well, 1,400 years later, at the time of Jesus, that amounted to around 20,000 men in Israel that were direct descendants uh, of Aaron. And obviously, not all of them could work at the temple at the same time, so they were divided into 24 groups or divisions. And Zacharias, it says, belonged to the division of Abijah. And his wife, it mentions, was also a daughter of Aaron. That's not just a miscellaneous uh, detail that's just thrown in the Bible for no reason, right? You, you had to have both a husband and a wife from Aaron in order for your son after you to carry on as a priest. And so this was a, 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 a special detail uh, that, that would explain, um, you know, sons of Aaron did marry daughters from the other tribes, but if, but if you wanted your child to be a priest, you had to marry another daughter of Aaron. And that's what, what they did. And, and look at how it describes both Zacharias and, and Elizabeth in verse 6. It says, they were both righteous in the sight of God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and requirements of the Lord. I mean, these, uh, this was an outstanding couple here. I mean, the, 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 walking blamelessly before the Lord. Now, that does not mean that they were perfect, right? 
The Bible makes it clear that every single person has sin. Uh, Romans 3.23, perhaps the, the, the most blunt verse in the Bible that has to deal with this when it says, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So we're all in that same boat of sinning and, and failing before God. But to be blameless uh, really carried two main ideas with it. Number one is that you're... you're your consistent character was that you were striving and seeking to follow after God in all that you do. And then number two, when you did fail, you would follow the prescribed rituals and rules of offering sacrifices for your sin and, and taking care of that. And so both Zacharias and Elizabeth did that, and that made them uh, this blameless couple before the Lord. They were faithful followers of God, living good life, serving the Lord. And and as I said, uh, being a priest, uh, they were serving him in that honored position there in Israel. They would have enjoyed, because of that, community status and and would have had so many good things to be thankful for. But there was also a very great pain in their lives, described in verse 7. But they had no child, because Elizabeth was barren, and they were both advanced in years. Now think about that. In that one verse, there are years and years of pain and disappointment wrapped up. I mean, you can imagine them, right? As a young couple getting married, dreaming of the future, right? Waiting expectantly and excitedly for that time when in their home it would be filled with the the joyful sound of children and especially hoping for a boy who would carry on that tradition of being a priest just like Zacharias, his dad. But month after month and then year after year went by and no child came. And they prayed. I mean, that's made clear a little later in the passage, we'll see. I'm sure they prayed fervently and consistently, but nothing happened. And they watched as all their friends that they grew up with were busy uh, raising their own families. But for them, they just grew older and older together. And with every passing year, The dream grew more and more faint until finally they reached that age when they knew and they accepted that this was no longer going to happen. It seems to me that there's a rather straightforward lesson in here when we put verses 6 and 7 together, right? Sometimes righteous people can suffer very great hurts and disappointments in this life. I mean, I think occasionally we can slip into that false way of thinking that says, you know, hey, if, I, if I'm trying hard and I'm doing my best and I'm following God and I'm living uh, the life that He wants me to live, well, then somehow God should be obligated to make things work out for me, right? I mean, He, he, he should answer uh, my prayers for what I want or cause circumstances to go into my favor, And obviously, we probably wouldn't be quite so crass and and bold as to come right out and say, God, you owe me this. But really, that's what we're thinking deep down in our hearts. I'm going to cough here. (coughs) Excuse me. Cough and the bell rings. I don't know what. 
Where was I now? I got lost all of a sudden. Okay. Uh, one thing we can learn uh, from Zacharias and Elizabeth is that following God, living righteously, does not exempt you from the disappointments of life. And we're going to return to, to this thought a little later, but, but for now, let's continue on in the story. As I said earlier, there's about 20,000 priests living in Israel at that time, uh, divided into 24 divisions. So that meant there was about 850 priests in every division. And twice a year, for one week at a shot, each division was called to serve at the temple in Jerusalem. And that was the highlight of the year for every priest. Yet, even then, with so many, I mean, you're talking 850 of them, the chance of any one individual actually getting to personally perform the service in the temple was very slim. In fact, because it was such a a rare and high honor, no person was allowed to do it more than once in an entire lifetime. If your name got selected, that was it. You had that one-time opportunity, and most of the priests would go through their entire life with out ever getting that honor to serve right in the temple. But Zacharias beat those odds. Look at verse 9. According to the custom of the priestly office, he was chosen by lot. They had to draw straws to see who got to do this. Chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. I mean, what, what a thrill must have surged through Zacharias's heart at that moment. It'd be hard for us to even think of a comparison uh, that would help us to think about the way he would have felt at that time. Uh, Just uh, the most exciting moment of his life. He was actually chosen to serve. But but along with that thrill and excitement would have been this this weight of solemn responsibility in serving God in this this very special and honored way. And and you got to wonder, what was going through his mind as he was carrying the incense into the temple to burn on the altar there? I, I, I don't know what it was. But, but the incense was burned p- perpetually in the temple of God. And that's what this priestly service job was to do. The, the, uh, one priest out of the 850 was, was selected morning and then night. And they would carry in a big box of this burning incense to add to the altar of incense inside the temple that was right in front of the curtain that divided the holy place from the holy of holies. And Zacharias would have known what this place looked like by description. Every priest knew what it looked like by description, but this would have been his first and only opportunity to actually enter in there. And then we have verse 11, which is stated rather matter-of-factly, but you got to think about how shocking this would be. He's walking in there with his incense, and it says, and an angel of the Lord appeared to him standing to the right of the altar of incense. All right, so now you're walking in here to this temple where no one is allowed to be, and it would have been shocking to see anyone in there but an angel of the Lord. I mean, that lets you know that verse 12 was quite the understatement as it was printed there. Zacharias was troubled. And when he saw the angel and fear gripped him, yeah, I'll bet he was troubled. I'll bet fear gripped him. I would have been freaked out. This guy appears in the middle of the temple next to the altar where you're supposed to be going. 
But the angel didn't leave him in that state of fear very long. The next verse begins, But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zacharias, for your petition has been heard. Now, he gets that comforting word first, right? Do not be afraid. Uh, but then a bit of a perplexing statement. Your petition has been heard. And he's probably thinking in his mind, Well, which petition? I mean, I have lots of prayer requests that I bring before God. But the angel doesn't give him time to think about it because he immediately goes on to explain. And your wife, Elizabeth, will bear you a son and you will give him the name John. Oh, now, there's a petition that he hadn't prayed for years. He was an old man now. That ship had sailed right? A baby was no longer part of his thinking. And so this would have been incredible news. Uh, you know, what the angel then said next in verse 14 it seems completely unnecessary, right? You will have joy and gladness and many will rejoice at his birth. It would probably be inappropriate to say to an angel, well, duh, but, but that's, that's got to be what Zacharias was thinking, you know, joy and gladness? Are you kidding me? Yeah. I mean, this is something that we had dreamed about for years and had given up on. You have to wonder how much of the rest of the speech that Zacharias even heard or paid attention to, right? Uh, but the angel went on to explain that their baby boy would be no ordinary boy. He would be great, not so much in the eyes of men, but in the eyes of the Lord. Imagine being great in the eyes of God. And that this boy would have a very important job. He would be the one to prepare a way for the coming long-awaited Messiah. That's what verse 17 says. It is he, he being their baby, John, right, who will go as a forerunner before him, him being Jesus, in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fallen back to their children and the disobedient to the attitude of the righteous so to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. So Zacharias, I mean, his, his head had to be spinning and swirling by this time, but all of a sudden, the reality of his life and situation came back to mind. He and Elizabeth were old. Way too old for kids. So you have verse 18. Zacharias said to the angel, How will I know this for certain? For I am an old man, and my wife is advanced in years. Smart guy, right? Calls himself an old man, doesn't call her an old lady. He says, she's advanced in years. You know, very, very diplomatic uh, that he was doing there. But he wasn't just asking a question about how this could happen. He wasn't just wondering, he was doubting. Doubting that it could be done at all. And that's clear from the angel's response. You can hear the rebuke in the angel's voice, right? When he answers, the angel answered and said to him, I am Gabriel who stands in the presence of God. And I have been sent to speak to you and bring you this good news. And behold, you shall be silent and unable to speak until the day when these things take place because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their proper time. Now, being struck mute like that, that would have been an obvious sign to Zacharias, not to mention to everybody else, that God was really doing something. But it was also 
a mild chastisement there to him. I mean, if you had had this awesome, incredible encounter with an angel that not very many people have that type of uh, encounter, right? Uh, and, and then you have this, this overwhelmingly wonderful good news, what would you want to do? You would want to tell everybody all about it, right? I mean, you'd be telling the story of this angel and how that appeared and what it was like in there over and over again. And then you would want to share with anybody and everybody who would listen this great news that is, is coming for you, this blessing that God is bringing into your life. And Zacharias could do none of that now. End of the week of service, he went back home. Elizabeth was no doubt startled by, first of all, his silence, and then secondly, the news that I'm sure he shared with her by written word. And sure enough, a short time later, they were expecting a baby. Verse 24, after these days, Elizabeth, his wife, became pregnant and she kept herself in seclusion for five months saying, this is the way the Lord has dealt with me in the days when he looked with favor upon me to take away my disgrace among men. So we got a great, great story there. But I want to just sum up by looking at a couple of quick lessons. We already pointed out that Zacharias and Elizabeth were righteous people, faithful followers of God, but that did not shield them from the hurts and disappointments of this life. And we need to understand that nowhere does God promise that following Him will result in nothing but good things and positive circumstances in this world. In fact, sometimes the very opposite may be true. I mean, we get that when we read uh, Hebrews 11, uh, the Faith Hall of Fame, where he's describing these great men and women of God and how by faith they experience the incredible working uh, of God and the power of God in their life. But sometimes God's plan did not involve good circumstance for these heroes of the faith. Uh, as verse 36 in that chapter makes clear, it says, And others experienced mockings and scourgings, yes, also chains and imprisonment. They were stoned, they were sawn in two, they were tempted, they were put to death with the sword, they were went about in sheepskins, in goatskins, being destitute, afflicted, ill-treated. And it goes on to explain that these were men and women who, of whom the world was not worthy. I mean, these were great men and women of faith. And, and for many of them, many of these, these Faith Hall of Fame inductees, the, these negative circumstances were theirs. That was their lot un, un, until death. They were never relieved here on earth. You see, the, the promise of a better life is in that life to come, not right down here on earth. And guess what? God doesn't always explain why you're going through what you're going through. Think about it. During all those years of waiting for a baby, up until the point where they decided it was no longer possible, they never once got a memo from God explaining what was going on. Never once did they hear from him saying, well, you know, you guys are a special couple. Hold on just a while. Uh, you're you're going to have a baby, but it's going to be much later than normal because I've got a special plan I'm doing. They didn't know. And the reality is we may never know why here on earth. But like Zacharias and Elizabeth, our faith in God can make us okay with that. And our pain may be different than theirs. 
right? There's a thousand things that can cause deep hurt and disappointment in this life. But we can learn another lesson from them. In the midst of their pain and disappointment, they were still faithfully following and serving God. They did not give in to bitterness. It's obvious that they still loved God. And I know that our temptation is to focus on the hurt and what we didn't get from God or maybe what we are getting and we're thinking we shouldn't get these negative things or, or bad things. And the path, that path always leads to anger and bitterness. So we can take a cue from Zach and Liz here and, and focus on the goodness of God and li- loving Him even when life hurts. And one last thought, and this one comes from Zacharias. Even a righteous man can sometimes have doubts about God's promises. Think about it. He, he had those doubts. He didn't understand or see how it could happen. And he was rebuked for that, but he was not rejected. I mean, it's not like God said, well, if you're not going to believe me, then I'll go find somebody else to be John's dad. You know, uh, God didn't throw him out like that. It was a gentle rebuke that he gave him that actually, instead of driving Zacharias further away from God, drew him back into that position of faith. And you may go through a period of doubt or over some promise of God in your own life. That doesn't make you evil or bad. It just means you are a less than perfect human being. So, you know, welcome to the crowd. Don't be afraid to take your doubts to God. His desire is to deal gently with you, to draw you back into that position of faith. He is a, a loving Heavenly Father. And sure, there may be some mild chastisement with it, but it'll be a chastisement that draws you back and causes you to focus once again on Him and His Word. Because there's one thing we can learn about God in this story, and that's He keeps His promises. And I'm not talking about just Zacharias and Elizabeth here. They thought they were too old for a baby, but when God said it would happen, it happened. But this baby wasn't just a promise to them, was it? It was a promise to us. It was a promise to the whole world. See, God said that He was one day going to send His Messiah. And He promised that before He sent the Messiah, He would send a man to announce the way, to proclaim and make ready a way for the Lord. And God kept those promises you can trust God he has proven he will not fail and that's a lesson we can learn from this part of the Christmas story let's pray Father God we are so thankful that even in pain and hurt that can come from this world you never leave us And your promises never fail. You are faithful, God. And so in you we can trust. We can stand strong. Thank you, God, for loving us. Thank you that your mercies are new every morning. And thank you, God, that we have the promises yet to come. We pray that you would help us to stand firm in those. In Jesus' name, amen.